Hello, and welcome to the CBC The Rim podcast. We're glad you found us. CBC The Rim is a church in San Antonio, Texas. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us at cbctherim.com. We hope you enjoy the message. Well, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to grab it and meet me in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. And as you turn there, um, I love uh, social experiments. I love everything about it. My wife and I, we've recently started watching a show on Netflix called Magic for Humans, which is just one giant social experiment. But recently, um, or I guess it's a couple years ago, but, but one of my favorites is one done by the Washington Post where they ask this question, could sophisticated people experience extraordinary beauty if it was wrapped in the ordinary? That was like the question that they posed. Could sophisticated, educated people experience extraordinary beauty if it was in the ordinary? And so what they did a couple years ago is they took a a man by the name of Joshua Bell. He was 39 at the time. And he is considered right now one of the greatest musicians on our planet. He's the greatest violin player on our planet. He sells out arenas. Uh, at the lowest end of the tickets being $100 a ticket, sells out. And so they said, if we put him in Washington, D.C., the metro station at the peak hour, like rush hour, and he played uh, a very expensive instrument and played some of the most beautiful, complex music uh, written on our planet, would people notice since it's wrapped in the ordinary? And so sure enough, Joshua Bell goes down to the metro station, he opens up his violin case and pulls out a $3.5 million violin that was built in the 1700s. And he begins to play for 43 minutes some of the most beautiful and intricate music. And what shocked the Washington Post and many other musicians was that in that 43 minutes, about 1,200 people walked by him and less than 10 stopped for even a minute. That an artist that sells out arena, you can't get tickets to his show, but people wouldn't even stop for a few seconds to even listen to the music. And it shocked Man, these, like these other musicians, and it shocked the Washington Post. And what they kind of landed on was this, that it is, when it comes to sophisticated people recognizing extraordinary beauty in ordinary situations, they, they said this, that it's not just possible to miss it, but it's almost probable, that it's almost probable that something about the ordinary blinds us to the extraordinary. And tonight, as we just kind of, kind of land the plane on this sermon series, kind of wrapping up the Christmas holidays, that it is, it is the, the fact that Jesus, God in the flesh, would be willing to leave his throne room and come to planet Earth in the form of a baby. This, I mean, this is a moment that people have been waiting for and looking for for thousands of years, but yet only a few people noticed it. And when you think about the nativity scene, it's just two broke teenagers and a couple of ragtag shepherds and some barn animals. That's all who really notices it. And so with this very few people 
being the people that notice the song that God is writing, that only a few people stop to hear the music, then here's what I want to present tonight. If that it was possible for all of the people 2,000 years ago that were anxiously awaiting this moment, if they missed it then, then I think it's very probable that we could miss it today. And so Matthew chapter 2 is going to tell us the story of some unlikely people that they hear the song that God is writing and it ends up changing their life. And so I want us to look at their story tonight from a few different angles. And here's my hope, that as we look at their story, that it would tune our story to God's story. That's kind of my hope tonight. So Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, or wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard, that he was, he heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, that's what the the religious leader said, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. As they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense or frankincense and of myrrh. Well, tonight, there are two settings that we need to see to get the context of this story. First off, there's the urban setting of Jerusalem, and then there's this rural suburb of Bethlehem. So if you want to just kind of get a, a little bit of a context, think Jerusalem to Bethlehem is like San Antonio to maybe like burning or maybe comfort, okay? So you've got these two regions, and then we're going to meet the character named King Herod. Now, here's what you need to know about King Herod. Because of his just, I mean, he's kind of the governor that's been placed in charge of uh, Jerusalem. And so he was referred to as the king of Jews. That'll be important in just a second. Also, because he was a king, he thought, a little pride, thought that he had divinity in him and he was called the son of God. Interesting, those two titles. Now, Herod is a brilliant politician, and he boosts the economy in Jerusalem, starts to kind of man, restructure a lot of architecture before Jesus is born. Brilliant politician, but he's also a crazy person, 
okay? And he's got a lot of dysfunction in his personal life. He's married 10 times. Uh, he ends up killing his favorite wife for whatever reason, uh, mostly probably because he felt threatened by her. He kills three of his sons because he felt threatened by them. He kills his mother-in-law, probably just because she's the mother-in-law. And it's just like, I mean, he's really dysfunctional, super insecure, and is threatened by so many things. Hold on to that. We also see tonight the magi or the wise men. Now, a couple of things. Typically, when we think of the nativity scene, we picture Mary and Joseph, Mary and all of her glory looking beautiful, even though she just had birth in a barn. And then we have these shepherds that look like they just showered perfectly clean and cute, all these barn animals. And then we see three wise men. Now, we know historically that's not accurate. A couple of reasons. The wise men, when they show up here, they show up to a house. So it's not at the day of the birth of Jesus. We don't know if it's a week later, a month later, or a year later. But we know it's not right when Jesus is in the manger uh, in the stable, that he's at a house. And these men have been traveling for a while. The scripture says that they come from the Middle East, what is currently today Iran or Iraq. And they show up to the capital city of Jerusalem and they come to King Herod and they communicate, hey, we're here, we saw a star and we're looking for the king of the Jews that was just born. The title that King Herod used for himself. This would be the equivalent of some people from the Middle East rolling up in their Escalade, blacked out windows to our capital city, going to the White House, demanding attention with President Trump, and then telling him, hey, we know that close by here, your replacement has been born, and we're here to worship him. I mean, you can just imagine the Twitter storm that that would create, okay? <laughs> But that's, that's the story that we find ourselves in right here. As crazy as it may be, this is the story. But the question that I've been wrestling with all week is this. Why is it that these unlikely characters from the Middle East are somehow able to hear the music that God is writing when so many other people missed it? That no one else seems to notice it. No one else seems to move. Why is it? These men. Well, there's three movements that uh, I think we're going to see here in the text. I'm going to go ahead and give you all three of the points, and then I'm going to try to unpack them quickly. Here's the three movements that we see. The first off, they were able to see what God was doing in the world. They were able to see it. Point number two is they were willing to walk toward what God was doing in the world. And then the third is they were eager to release what God had put in their hands for the sake of what he was doing in the world. So point number one, they were able to see what God is doing in the world. Verse two says that, they, that the wise men, the Magi say, for we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Now these men, they didn't grow up in the church. They didn't grow up on the right side of the spiritual tracks. They didn't grow up near Jerusalem where they would have had all of this backstory, which is just interesting when you just pause there for a little bit and think about this. None of us comes to Jesus on our own. 
Like if you just think about your story and how you came to follow Jesus, not a single one of you just woke up randomly one day and said, you know what, I haven't heard anything about Jesus. I don't know anything about him, but today I want to give my life to him. That you are a sum of so many people investing in you, loving you, and you walking alongside of you. That all of our stories are different. And if you even just begin to process, like, how is it that you came to know Jesus? And what are the pieces that were at play? But as you think about this with the wise men, I want you to go back and think of the story of Daniel in the Bible. Who Daniel lived 600 years prior to Jesus being born. And Daniel grows up, good Jewish boy, very religious, but then Babylon like comes in and ransacks his city, his nation. And now he's exiled and enslaved, and he grows up, and he's faithful to God through the midst. And he, I mean, gosh, rises in power. Daniel uh, chapter 2 would tell us this, that the king placed Daniel in high position and lavished many gifts on him. Now watch this. He made him, so the king makes Daniel the ruler over the entire providence of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men or its magi. So this teenage boy, faithful to God, not a priest, not a pastor, he's actually a slave in the political realm, but he's faithful and he finds favor and the king puts him in charge of all of the wise men. History would tell us that later on Persia is going to overtake Babylon and then you'll see that Daniel gets put in charge of the wise men of Persia. So we don't know for certain if the wise men come from Babylon or from Persia, but regardless, Daniel's influence of discipling these men and pouring into the Magi at that time trickled down all the way to 600 years later. There are wise men in the Middle East waiting on a star. Why? Because Daniel knew the scriptures, and in Numbers 24, 17, it tells us that there will be a star over the town of Jacob pointing to the hero to come. Daniel knew the scriptures and taught the scriptures, so now these wise men have been searching the stars, waiting for the sign to come. They had eyes to see. And the significance, I just, I love this of even Daniel's life. That a lot of times when we think of Daniel, we think about his legacy being the, like being in the lion's den. But I think one of his most powerful and significant parts of his legacy doesn't happen for six centuries. That it is possible for your life to have impact six centuries beyond when you're placed into the ground. And that is my hope for us, even as just individuals and as, as a church, that we would impact generations and generations and generations. The Magi, they were astronomers, and I love this too. Astronomers, they studied the skies, they're brilliant philosophers as well. And God meets them right where they are. He gives them a star, something that they understood, something that they'd seen. Just like the shepherds, he meets them right where they are. The magi were in the crosshair of God's love and his grace. And they were able to see 
because their hearts were responsive to what God was doing. Listen, God is always working in and around us. And many of us will miss it because we're not looking. Just for that simple fact, we're not looking. Jeremiah would tell us this. He says that when God says, if you will, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That these magi had eyes open, ready. God, we believe you're at work. We believe that you're doing something. And that's why they saw. And if we're not looking, church, we'll miss it. I will miss it. God is always doing great things around us. And a lot of times we don't see it. But they were willing to see because they were looking for it. Point number two is this. They were willing to walk toward what God is doing in the world. They were willing to walk towards what God was doing in the world. If, like I said earlier, we don't know if they were from Babylon or Persia. If they're from Babylon, it means they were about 1,400 miles away from Bethlehem. If they're in Persia, it means they're 1,700 to 2,000 miles away. And they have to walk. No cars, no trains, no airplanes. Like These guys are walking. Maybe, maybe they're riding camels, but still... Uh, that doesn't sound awesome at all to me, to ride a camel for 2,000 miles. Like, that's like riding a camel from San Antonio all the way to New York City, just to put that into perspective, okay? And so it was about a 40-day journey at best. And I, I, don't, I don't know why God chooses to work this way. I don't know why this is the story he's writing. I mean, to me, he could have shown up and he could have seen these men. He goes, hey, listen, you're waiting anxiously for this baby to show up. Guess what? He's here. Stay put. That's all you need to know. He's here. Like God could have done that, but instead of making it easier, that God man, just presses in. And he ultimately communicates to these men that everything you're looking for has happened. But if you want to encounter it, you have to move towards it. That everything that you're looking for, everything that you're wanting, it's happening. But if you're going to encounter it, you've got to move towards it. That God meets us where we are. But if we want to grow, we have to be willing to move. We have to be willing to leave jobs, routines, conveniences all behind. I mean, seriously, this is what they said. Hey, listen, I saw a sign. God's doing something in the world, family. I'll see you in March. Like that's, they leave. They walk away from all of it. And they move towards God. And I just want to say this, listen, moving towards God is rarely a convenient move. It's rarely a short one. And it rarely comes without a price. And we live in a culture that is obsessed with convenience and comfort and routine and status quo. And we end up shortchanging ourselves with the deeper things of God because we're so interested in keeping things the way they are. If you want to go new places, you have to be willing to leave where you are. If you want to go to new places, you have to be willing to leave where you are. They didn't just see. They were willing to walk. A couple months ago, we got to celebrate the marriage of a roommate. Um, our friend Jesse got married, and Jesse, for the longest time, didn't have a car and would have to walk or take the bus 
everywhere that he went, like downtown San Antonio. He would, it would take him like four hours to get there. And uh, I remember him just coming home and telling story after story of just when you have to walk places or you have to take a bus places, you see a city in a whole new light. You see things that oftentimes you miss. And many of us, if we stay in the comfort of what we're used to and of the routine, we'll miss all the things that God is doing in and around us. But for us to encounter Jesus, we have to be willing to move towards it. Point number three is this. Not only were they able to see, were they willing to walk, they were eager to release what God had put in their hands for the sake of what he was doing in the world. Look at verse 11 here. It says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. I love this, that they release. Like these men are men of power. You know just how you know that just from the text? The fact that they could demand an audience with King Herod and no questions asked. These are men of influence, men of power. And then here they come and they release all of that control. They release all of that power. They may just bow in humility and begin to worship him. And they lay down three gifts, the king, like, I mean, this gold and frankincense and myrrh. And just kind of so that you know, gold was considered the symbol of wealth and of kingship. Frankincense was burnt in the Holy of Holies, which would have been a symbol of priesthood. And then myrrh was an embalming fluid that you would wrap a body in when it was buried, which is kind of strange because that's like showing up to a baby shower in San Antonio, and you're like, I got three gifts. I got a gold crown, I've got an artifact of worship, and I got a baby casket. You'd be like, super weird, very strange. But that's these gifts that they bring. And with them, there's this beautiful symbolism that so often we miss. The gold given was to signify that this baby is the king that will rule over his people. Frankincense meant that he's not only a king, but he's a priest. That he spiritually will lead and guide and shepherd his people. But more than that, them bringing myrrh was communicating that this kingly priest will die for his people. As a, as, as, as a token, as a ransom to buy back his people out of slavery. That, that That's the gospel. That's the story that you and I are living into. That the God of the universe, after thousands of years of anxiously waiting for his arrival, that shows up like no one expected, that God himself would leave his throne room, come to our planet and put on human flesh and become a baby. That he would live the life that you and I should have lived and that he would die the death that we deserved. Like that was our death penalty, not Jesus's. But he was willing to take that on himself for you and I. And then on the cross, the wrath that God had stored up for all of our sin, all of our injustice, all of our treason was poured out on Jesus, our king, our priest, and placed into a tomb three days later. Jesus walks out of the grave, 
alive, proving that he has power over your sin and your death, and that anyone who's willing to call upon the name of Jesus, who's willing to Texas Hold'em style push all the chips in, said, Jesus, my life is yours. You take it. Listen, I'm tired of trying to figure this out on my own. I'm tired of being the captain of my own life. I see where I'm leading this thing, and it's not great. Like, I'm not doing a swell job of this. So I'm going to step off of the throne room and you be the king. You be the priest. You be the captain. And you lead. And that's what it means for him to be Lord. Say, listen, you take leadership. I'll follow you. You designed all of this thing. You know how it's meant to be run. So I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow your lead. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To let him be Lord, to let him call the shots, to trust him and obey him. To be a follower of Jesus doesn't mean we just check a box that says that we go to church or that we affiliate with the Christian religion. It means that we follow after this king, trusting that even though we don't know what's next, he knows what's best. And so we'll lean into that and follow after him. And then the scripture tells us in verse 10 that when they released everything that they had, I love that, they released their treasure, whatever they found worth, they released it to King Jesus, said, it's all yours. You, I'm not holding on to any of it, I'm giving it to you. That in that moment, verse 10, it says that they were filled with joy, overjoyed, And I'll just say this, I believe that our joy is only found in a fresh encounter with Jesus. The fullness of our joy. Yeah, sure, there's momentary happiness, but Psalm 1611 would say that the fullness of joy is found at his right hand. That life and life alone is found in his presence. So tonight, as I just kind of land the plane, I want to ask you this question. In this story, which character do you identify with the most? Which, which do you relate to the most in this story? Is it, is it Herod? As we looked at Herod, notice he recognized what God was doing in the world, but he felt threatened by it, and he decides to shut it down. Many of us, We start to sense that God is moving and doing something in our lives and that threatens our control, that threatens our world. And we want want to be in control. And so it's easy in those moments when we feel God begin to whisper to our heart to try to shut it down. Is Is that the character that you relate to the most? Or is it the religious leaders? That if you notice that these guys, when Herod, In verse 4, when he heard all of this, he's disturbed, and he calls together these chief priests, these religious leaders. And what's interesting about them is they knew where all of this was taking place. They knew where the baby was going to be born, but they never bothered to check it out themselves. It is possible to point people 
to something that you aren't personally experiencing. A couple of years ago, um, I remember us sitting with a couple who's about to get married and just kind of laughing. I was like, oh, you know, this is the best advice I can give you in marriage. And months later, uh, we had them back over for dinner. And the guy starts to tell me, he's like, Drew, this piece of advice that you gave me was brilliant. Like it's changed our whole marriage. So grateful that you gave that to me. And it was that moment where you're just like, uh, I should probably take that advice. That's good. I'm going to write that down. What was it again that I told you? And there's, it's often that sometimes we can give advice that we're not personally taking. And the same is true when it comes to Jesus. We can walk in here. We can point to Jesus. We can sing songs to Jesus. We can talk about Jesus. But it's a whole other thing to be experiencing Jesus. And so do we relate more to the religious leaders? Or if it's not Herod, not religious leaders, is it the Magi, the wise men, who recognized, who walked towards, and who released everything that they had for Jesus. Right now, whether you know this or not, God is doing amazing things in our world. Sometimes at face value, it looks upside down, and it is as well. But God is still on his throne, and he is still working. And we're believing that 2020, God's still going to be working. And we honestly believe for our church that the best is yet to come. The question will be for you and I as a church and as individuals, will we have eyes to see it? And when we see it, will we be willing to walk towards it? And then will we be willing to release everything that we have to Jesus going, I trust you, I trust your leadership, and I'll follow you and obey you wherever you want to take me. And so tonight, man, I'll just kind of pose this question. Which one of those three is the hardest for you? Is it the hardest to see it? Is it the most difficult once you see it to start walking towards it? Or once you find yourself in the presence, is it the hardest to release everything to him? And I believe as we move in from like 2019 to 2020, it's worth wrestling with that question, church. I want to pray for us, and then we'll shift gears. Jesus, tonight, I pray for us. God, I pray that you would make us sensitive to what you're doing in us, through us, around us. That Jesus, just like it is so easy to miss extraordinary beauty in a subway when it's wrapped in the ordinary, so often we can miss all that you're doing, all the beauty that surrounds us because it's just ordinary. It's just routine. It's just mundane. So Father, whatever it is for us, I pray that you would, you would shake things up for us and that you would lead us into 2020 with sensitive hearts to what you're doing and how we can join with you. Help us, Jesus. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, church, 
There is a lot of reasons to celebrate uh, the end of 2019. It's crazy that just, man, three and a half months ago, this didn't even exist. It's weird to think about it. For some of us, it feels like it's been a lifetime. It's like all we know. But three and a half months ago, like this, this wasn't, this church wasn't here. Like we didn't show up, we didn't pack this room, we didn't sing, we didn't celebrate. Uh, that's, and that's just crazy. And I, I'm just talking to Jane this morning and just bragging on you guys. This has been one of the most difficult and the most beautiful journeys that we've encountered. I had no idea what to anticipate, just the spiritual weight and stress. I'm, I'm the guy that uh, when I lay my head down on the pillow, if I'm not asleep within 30 seconds, I'm up drinking herbal tea and melatonin, like I'm, I'm out quick. And since September 15th, there's rarely been a night that I'm not just tossing and turning for hours through the night. Last night, couldn't even go to sleep till like three o'clock. Just wrestling, just feeling the spiritual weight. But this, that's the hard part, but then this beauty of watching our culture shift and watching you guys worship in ways that we didn't worship even six weeks ago. Watching the fact that we were able to celebrate 13 death to life stories, people that in September 15th before that did not know Jesus personally. Like that's amazing. 10 baptisms, we get to celebrate in a feed trough out in that courtyard. Like that's, that's amazing. Like so many ama amazing stories. The fact that right now, I don't know if you guys know this, that there are about 11 house churches that meet throughout the rim area weekly, gathering together to per pursue intimacy with Jesus and with one another and in seeking to be good news to their neighborhood. Like right now, our church, that about almost 200 people are experiencing real intimate community. Like that's, that's really powerful. And many of the stories that we hear over and over again is that, hey, listen, we stepped into this church and maybe this was new to us or we've been church in church, around church for a long time, but this is the first time I've actually felt known. It's the first time I've had people step into my life and go, hey, listen, good, bad, ugly, I'm with you. And all of that because you guys have been willing to just say yes and to get a little messy and choose to love one another and so many crazy stories. I, listen, this is not what it's about, but it's just cool to brag on the Lord. Most churches, they say that about 90% of church plants fail. They don't make it. And about, out of that 10% that actually make it, about 85% of those will never reach over the 200 mark. Most hang out, about the average is about 85 people. And God has been so gracious to allow just even this room to be full. That it is, man, church planters beg God to show up, to allow like the church to be like self-sustaining in the first two years. If in the first two years that you can be self-sustaining, like that's a massive victory. And CBC The Rim has been able to be self-sustaining at month two, completely taken care of. 
And not, not only that, that we've been able to allocate 10% of our budget, just like Gold Canyon, to missions. To say, God, listen, we want to tithe from the tithe. We want to give to missions all over our city and across the world. Like, that's the kind of church. And I just, it's not about, listen, please hear my heart. It's not about the money. It's not about seating capacity. But you guys have started actually viewing yourselves as everyday missionaries. And that even just the 13 death to life stories that we know of, this is my favorite part. Not a single one of them was led to Jesus by me. They were all led to Jesus by you. Paul, I don't even know, it's Glenn here. It's Glenn here tonight, he's not here. A guy in your rim community, Paul, one night you're just like, hey, I desperately need Jesus and Glenn, who's a couple decades older than you, introduced you to him. The many people have said yes to Jesus in coffee shops and most of them on couches and living rooms. I love the fact that as we baptize 10 people, that I didn't baptize a single one because many of those people, those aren't the people that I've invested in. They're people that you've invested in. And this is the type of church that we want to be where we're all in this together and we're a family. And we have just so much to celebrate in just three and a half months. I can't even begin to imagine what 2020 is gonna hold when we get a whole 12 months run at it. So. Thank you for listening to the CBC The Rim podcast. If you like the message, then check us out at cbctherim.com. There you can learn more about our gathering times, upcoming events, or how to get more involved. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at CBC The Rim. Thanks for listening.